Last week I looked to set a tone for the series. And we saw briefly that God was in the business of raising up a community who would be agents of his rule on the earth. And, and we've seen him consistently do that. Adam and Eve was a start for that. Then that fell, they fell, it fell. And again, he, he, he established a, another thing with Abraham and Sarah raising up a people. And as we come into Leviticus, we see that this is a teaching document to them. It's just a year after their escape from slavery in Egypt. And if you know your Bible history, you'll also know it's 39 years before they inherit the promised land too. They have been taught in this time to become the people that the promised land needs to have occupy it. You see, that Canaan, where they're going, has a lot of people that need to be driven out. And God will actually use Israel as, an, as a tool of judgment in that particular uh, setting. But for now, they need to learn to be God's redeemed covenant people. They need to understand that they are called and set apart to be a holy people reflecting a holy, sovereign God. The law has been given in Exodus and the tabernacle has been erected according to God's blueprint. To the people it becomes a sacred site for worship. And it's also very much like a portable palace in its design. In this place, God makes his presence tangibly known. And last week's passages in chapters 1 and 2 indicate that he was fully assuming that now that he was near, the people would be seeking to come before him. In those chapters, we were challenged about the general way we worship the holy God that speaks out of Leviticus. And we saw that worship is always to be an offering of our best. Worship is more than fulfilling a duty on an allocated day. It's not a Sunday one and done thing. It's a week-long reflection on what God is doing in and around us and a reflection on what we are going to do to mirror that. And worship is not passive in any, in any way. You are a participant in worship, not an observer. You don't go to the tabernacle demanding your needs be met. You come instead with awe. And you come with a question more along the lines of this. How do I offer what I have to this amazing holy God with clean hands and clean heart? And we were challenged about our own worship expression. Romans 12 calls us to live our entire lives as a living sacrifice. Because this is a fair and reasonable expression of worship for believers today. Today we're going to look at a few more of the offerings that are spoken of in the chapters that follow on. There is no way on earth... I can carry out in great detail all that has been assigned to me this week. There's a lot of chapters. But I will just hone in on one in a major way 
and then I'll look at a couple of others briefly. We'll start with the fellowship offering. This is actually going to show up in Leviticus 3 and I'll read some passages from there and Leviticus 7 to finish the idea out and we'll have different spots along the line. Uh, um, Just I'll read out the parts to you as you go here. So Leviticus chapter 3 verse 1 to 5 is our first passage. If your offering is a fellowship offering and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present before the Lord an animal without defect. You are to lay your hand on the head of of your offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar. From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord. The internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loids, and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is lying on the burning wood. It is a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Turn over to chapter 7 and we'll look at just a couple of passages there, 11 to 15 first. These are the regulations for the fellowship offering. Anyone may present it to the Lord. If they offer it as an expression of thankfulness, then along with this thank offering, they are to offer thick loaves made without yeast and with olive oil mixed in, plus thin loaves made without yeast and brushed with oil, and thick loaves of the finest flour, well kneaded and with oil mixed in. Along with their fellowship offering of thanksgiving, they are to present an offering with thick loaves of bread made with yeast. They are to bring one of each kind as an offering, a contribution to the Lord. It belongs to the priest who splashes the blood on the fellowship offering against the altar. The meat of their fellowship offering of thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it is offered. They must leave none of it till morning. Now we'll flick down to verse 28, just to round the idea out. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Anyone who brings a fellowship offering to the Lord is to bring part of it as their sacrifice to the Lord. With their own hands they are to present the food offering to the Lord. They are to bring the fat together with the breast and wave the breast before the Lord as a wave offering. The The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. You are to give the right thigh of your fellowship offerings to the priest as a contribution. The son of Aaron who offers the blood and the fat of the fellowship offering shall have the right thigh as his share. From the fellowship offerings of the Israelites I have taken the breast that is waved and the thigh that is presented and have given them to Aaron the priest and his sons as their perpetual share from the Israelites. This offering is a voluntary one. And it's not all that frequent, but it was incredibly loaded with symbolism when it took place. Now we read here from the NIV that I've used here that it's called a fellowship offering. In the King James Version, it is called a peace offering. And the Hebrew word used seems to indicate a hint of both ideas in play. The idea is that you ponder and express with gratitude the work of God in your life and you understand how intertwined that is with your active relationship with him. It's amazing. On occasion, members of God's covenant community will have realisations at times 
of their distinct well-being in God. Not in a prosperity preacher sort of way, but a fresh appreciation of God's goodness and favour in their lives. It's a prosperity that occurs in their lives simply because God's hand is resting on them. It could come at the end of a tough time. Oh God, you got me through that. I'm so thankful. It could be a time where things have gone right for quite some time and you've gone, gee, God really needs some gratitude for that. It's one of those times where a child of God just wakes up and goes, God has been at work. I've got to thank him for that. I'm grateful. Now, hopefully, all of us here have had one or two of those moments in our lives. In reality, there should be a whole lot more, right? In this ancient community, there was an act of worship and an offering that was deemed highly appropriate for those times. And again, God is assuming that you're going to come to these places in life. When you come to simply give me gratitude and give me a fellowship offering, here it is. Why does he assume this? Well, God knows what he's been doing. Think about that. God knows full well what he's been up to in our lives, in and around us. The fact that there is still oxygen in the planet is enough. But imagine that. God has been a hard at work all around us, on our behalf and on the world's behalf, extending grace, And Israel has that image of the tabernacle, the massive pillar of cloud and and the fire and all those things. God is actually showing up. He's in their midst. They're supposed to put two and two together. There's God. There's that going right. There's my... Something in me is thankful. That, that, that. What am I not... That. Oh, yeah, it's God. And so God says, here's what you do when you come to those points. Present a fellowship or a peace offering. It's quite unlike the others, but also the same in some key ways. It's got some very unique traits about it. It is similar to the others in that it is to be without defect. Because no offering in any form for any reason is allowed to be flawed. It has to be your very best at all times. We're to remember here that he is a redeeming covenant king. Therefore, our worship needs to reflect this. It is similar that it requires work on the offerer's part. The slaughtering and the butchering is done by you. And there is no fellowship offering without something dying. It's not like the grain offerings. You've got it, that's part of it because you're making bread and stuff. But a fellowship offering has to have an animal accompany it. There is similarity in, emerging in all the offerings. That the life-giving parts, the blood, the liver, the kidneys... Those things are off-limits to man and reserved entirely to God. And so are the choicest parts of the animal. 
When it talks about the fat of things, that's actually a statement about the things that are actually considered delicacies and good. When it says the, the, the lamb or the flock, they're talking about broad-tailed sheep. And the tail gets sliced off with everything else as well and is burnt because there's a big fat deposit in that and it's actually a delicacy even today. It is different because there's no allowance for birds here. Because a bird would not be big enough for the fellowship offering process. But also, it's implied that those who were the bird offering type, the poorer in their community, were probably less likely to be offering this offering, but more likely to be participants anyway when you invite them to your table afterwards. Only part of the animal is offered on the altar here. The rest is presented in the house of God alongside some loaves of bread. Some of the meat portions are waved. Some of the meat portions are set apart. But the flesh is eaten in community. Some of that goes to the priest. And this is God allowing for the priest to be able to be fed and be able to eat clean food while they ministered. And the rest would become a feast of fellowship, whether it be for your household or even for your neighbours, to celebrate. Next slide, mate. We didn't get to read this, but this is on the proviso that the participants were also part of the worship process. We know this because of where people needed to be at on the holiness spectrum. Those who eat the feast are to be in a clean state. This is a state the people were to come as they went to the tabernacle. This is the ritual cleanness because the camp where they lived was unclean but to step into the house of God They needed to go through some ritual. They needed to go through some soul searching and some examination, some washing, some reflection. And in that clean state, they could participate in this fellowship meal. By setting this standard, the whole people would capture the truly sacred nature of what is occurring here. All would be able to join the process of thanksgiving all would be able to enjoy with thankful hearts the fellowship they have with God. All would be able to be able to be clean for worship and therefore everyone would have a Godward view. So fellowship in their setting was God and fellowship with him first. Barbecue with the mates, a very very, very, very distant second. Fellowship's not, let's go pig out. It's, let's do something sacred together. I take all this in and I'm compelled to consider what it is I call fellowship. As a modern day believer, how do I reflect in this thankful way towards God? 
How do I reflect thankfully in the context of community? How do I do all this with clean hands and a holy heart? And if there's bloodshed involved in the Levitical process, how does Christ facilitate that for us today? Romans 1 explains that being justified by faith in Christ brings us to a position of peace with God. A position of peace and fellowship with Him cannot occur unless we go through Christ. And His work on the cross makes this possible. We know that the early believers made a constant habit of meeting to eat in what was called fellowship with communion being a common and regular component of this. It wasn't just the once a year Passover thing like the Jews and the way Jesus did it, but it was incorporated into a pretty full-on meal together. Arguably, if we look at it, more like a fellowship offering setting than a Passover supper. There is early secular documentation from Roman officials noting this is a significant habit of the Christians throughout the Roman Empire. They were spun out by it. Those guys eat together so much. Those guys do good things so much. And the letters that have been written were actually calling (laughs) pagans to out-Christian the Christians. But there was a risk that fellowship among believers in this way could also become quite profane. 1 Corinthians 11 is evidence of that early in the piece with Paul correcting the church about restoring the truly sacred nature of fellowship in their setting. The Lord's table setting was becoming profane because of this attitude to sacred fellowship going out the window. Getting drunk, eating everything before the poor could arrive. Those were some of the symptoms, some of the evidence that the Godward elements of fellowship and thankfulness for peace and well-being through Christ were being ignored. Instead, we're shown here in Leviticus that well-being and peace comes from God. Fellowship with Him is done through bloodshed and gratitude both towards Him and with each other is to be done with a recognition of the sacred nature of what is taking place among us. Fellowship in the New Testament, is sharing in common. And I'm standing in a room of people thrust together because of Christ. I don't know you outside of Christ. If I lived in the town long enough, I might know some of you. But when you consider what Jesus is putting together in this room from all walks of life, What have we got in common? Blood. I wonder how our Belzornos or Metro or Collars and Cuffs lunches after the service might be different as we ponder that, might be influenced as we ponder that. How do we celebrate God's peace and fellowship together in those settings? How do we remember the sacred things God has done? How do we remember the bloodshed that makes it happen? And how do we keep our hands clean? 
how does this Levitical passage take new life and principle in us? Now, as I said earlier, this is voluntary. It does involve the death of a beast. Some scholars see a diminished, atoning, sacrificial thing in this because not everyone could participate in the same sort of way. And yet, for a voluntary offering, look how seriously God took it. To the point that if you participated in any state less than clean, you'd be cut off from the people. If that's the case for this one, then how do you think God is going to approach the next two? The ones that deal with sin and guilt. Spoiler alert, it gets pretty heavy. Leviticus speaks of a sin offering in chapter 4. I'm not going to read it out to you today, except for one verse shortly. I will give some bullet points because I'm going to now anticipate you guys beginning to take what we've already discussed and then we can go one further a bit as we explain these as well. You can read through this in your own time, but let's look at a few things. First, the sin offering speaks of unintentional sin only. If anyone sins unintentionally, it says. Now, how do you explain that? Because I know a lot of people who get really paranoid about, am I a sinner? Is there no coming back from where I'm at? When people read about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in, Matthew, in, in, in the Gospels, <laughs> and they go, I've done the unpardonable, there's no bouncing back. How do you know? I don't know. <laughs> One way to describe this is that you're a people that are determined to do right. Determined to walk right. To determined to live right. And you've gone, I am a person of God, so it is my determination, it is the desire of my heart. I want to pursue this thing towards God. But in your frailty, you're going to do wrong. We don't get out of bed setting out to lie people, a lot of people. Hopefully we're not straight up frauds. We all go to bed, I'm an honest guy. We get out of bed going, I'm going to have an honest day's work. And somewhere along the way, we get caught up in our humanness or we get caught up in the emotion or we get our guard down or we have lapses in judgment and we go and lie. unintentional stuff. We set out to do right but we still blow it because we are human. In a setting like Israel where things need to be clean for worship, you don't set out to do unclean things. But sometimes unclean just gets on you. In Israel's case, where they lived was an unclean environment. There was impurity all around them. There was death and decay. There was just stuff. Like you and I have every day of our lives. It's just stuff, right? And all walks of life are not immune from this frailty. 
But we also do see here that people are held to different levels of account based on the influence they wield to the world around them. We see there are varying prescribed sacrifices depending on the role in society you played. Priests and community elders on behalf of the whole people are held to similar levels of account and process. Why? Because Exodus 19 says God's covenant people are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God takes the whole and holds it to account and takes the whole Godward and the whole towards each other seriously. Beyond that, leaders with lesser influence, perhaps clan leaders and the like, and the general public, these had a lesser process. If you seek to wield influence amongst God's holy community, then we do so with the solemn understanding that there's a high standard before God for that. And if you've seen the news, we know that there's a bit of disgrace when those people get it wrong. We're not to mess with that because of how God sees it. This is further symbolised by where the gl- <coughs> excuse me, where the blood ends up in each sacrifice and what becomes of the meat that is offered. This is a bit of a schematic of the um, of the tabernacle. You enter here. You've got all this courtyard. The whole thing's only forty-seven metres long. You can kick a football longer than the tabernacle, unless you're in Hobart last night. That was terrible. You've got three zones in there. You've got the courtyard and you, the altar of burnt offerings on the right. That's where the blood of the layperson and the community offering from the flock was offered. Blood poured out and, and offered and the permitted parts of the meat, once made holy, were eaten by the priest. But the blood from the elders and the priest offering from the herd was offered where that other ring is. That's the holy place. And in that setting, nothing was left. Everything was burned up. The bit at the far left of that little building, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is located, well, that's the, holy, the most holy place. The work of Christ was blood poured out for that come back to that later. Although the penalty is high and death and bloodshed is necessary, we see in 4 verse 35 a very clear and assuring outcome for those who fall but still come before the Lord. It says this, They shall remove all the fat just as the fat is removed from the lamb of the fellowship offering and the priest shall burn it on the altar or on top of the wood offerings presented to the Lord. This last sentence, in this way the priest will make atonement for them for the sin they have committed and they will be forgiven. There's the outcome at the end, atonement and forgiveness. Forgiveness is a sacred cancelling of debt against us. A return to cleanness. Hebrews 9 tells us where there is no blood, there is no forgiveness. That's even to a Christian understanding. 
But it goes on to explain in that chapter that the blood of Christ is sufficient for all time to obtain that forgiveness. And that his blood cleanses our very consciences in order to help free us to serve the living God. It's amazing what Jesus does. At this time, we see in the Levitical standard that the sin of mankind is so serious that only bloodshed could atone for it and only bloodshed could provide a way of forgiveness. As modern believers, we are able to take that understanding and apply it not to an altar in a holy place, but to Christ. His death, once and for all, offered in whole, like the offerings in this chapter, are sufficient for the sin of all mankind to find atonement and forgiveness. All these things that have been called for are complete today in Christ. These are, when Jesus says, I came to complete the law, think about 1,400, 1,500 years prior, God prescribing that which would be complete down the track in him. Massive. I'm going to wind up just finally with these last offerings. There's offerings and sacrifices presented beyond these ones. I'm actually going to set this as homework for you. Do a bit of devotional reading, why don't you? All the, the, whole, the first seven chapters of Leviticus explore the sacrificial system and set the tone for other parts in the book. The sin offering is used for other things down the track. They all get used in different ways. I'm going to set you the task of going to actually read into them a bit. I dare you. I'll guide you with it. Take note of the animals and produce that is offered. Take note of where it is offered and how it is consumed. Let those things speak into how these things are done and what they represent and what, and what they are, might, might apply to us, what principles we take from that. But I'll make these final bullet point observations about the subsequent offerings. The guilt offering, the purification offering, the reparation offerings that are spoken of in these chapters. Let me give you these foods for thought. One, God holds the value of justice highly. So as you read this, look for justice in it and God's desire for it. An example given in the pages is being silent when wrongdoing occurs among his covenant people. If you witness a crime and you keep your mouth shut, if you see an injustice and you don't speak up, if you see someone being falsely charged and you don't defend them, you will be held to account for that. There are offerings, there are sacrifices for that. God holds the value of justice highly. Second, repentance is more than just saying sorry. Coming to God with a sin offering and receiving atonement and forgiveness are great things. But there's also in those pages a call to confess sin. To allow things to come out in the light and be accountable for your actions. 
But also there is a call to actively seek and put things right among those who have been wronged along the way. Give what is due plus some. So it's not just the case of saying, I'm sorry, but in order for things to be restored between God and between men, how can I do all I can? How can I fall over myself to be completely reconciled to both God and to my neighbour? Third, my second last bit. God is deeply concerned about what his covenant people say what they touch, where they set foot, how they treat God's presence, how they respond to his instruction, their attitude to his dwelling place and their treatment of their neighbour. Ever so clearly in there. And finally, it's impossible for one single offering in Leviticus to completely sum up the work of Christ on the cross. We often stick with the simple things and we do communion talks around it. We, 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 when we say, Jesus died for me, he died for you, so that you don't have to pay sin's penalty, usually we have just the sin offering in our mind when we do that. But it should be apparent to us by now that bloodshed is present in everything so far. Therefore, every sacrifice and every offering has the chance to further illustrate and illuminate the vastness of Christ's complete work at Calvary. We were joking about this when I was talking to Ministers Association. What's a working title for our series? And they, one of them just laughed when he goes, just call it blood, 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 blood. But there's a lot of blood in there. There's a lot of sacrifice. Which very clearly Christians don't do today because it is complete at Calvary. As you read through, ponder that. Look at what's involved and be in awe of that. This is where I stop, friends. And I'm going to invite the band up. I'm going to ask you to be quiet for one moment, to bow your head in prayer. Let's do that. Let's bow. And all I'm going to do at this time is simply challenge you to ask for the Spirit's leading. Perhaps some here are been a little bit misinformed or uninformed or even blasé about the degree of bloodshed that was actually involved and what that means for, for the work of Christ. The extent of what he's done and what he's been accomplished. Maybe there is a challenge to revisit that and to come to a fresh sense of awe. Maybe the issue of fellowship with God and each other is being challenged in the room. Maybe we treat that as less sacred than it really is at times. 
There's a lot of things to stop and think about today and I'm going to pause and I'm going to allow the Spirit to speak.